Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It is time for the last event of the year. Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic are at the ATP Finals in Turin, Italy, or Torino, as uh, the Italians would obviously call it. Um, They are in separate groups, and on today's show, we are going to preview Djokovic and Rafa as they uh, approach this year-end championship. So Djokovic is in uh, group uh, red. They haven't named it after former players. They've done colors like Christmas, red and green. Djokovic is in red with Rublev, Medvedev, and Tsitsipas. Nadal is in green with Rude, Oje Aliassime, and Fritz. Before we break down every single head-to-head that we are going to see in this group stage, which I'm looking forward to, Let's uh let's talk in more general terms. Um, first, Novak Djokovic, who's won this many times, Joel, but hasn't won it since 2015. Do you feel motivationally like, well, first of all, why do you think it's been since 2015 after having so much success at this event? It's interesting the ebbs and flows this event takes for people. I think there was this period where it was mattered exceptionally so to Novak. It was kind of like a capstone to some great years he had in the first half of the prior decades. And it still does. I mean, that's not it as much as maybe some other guys have risen a little bit more. I mean, in the in the big picture, I think it's just guys have risen to the occasion. And I wonder if maybe Novak was a little more fatigued after some of his years. And that just kind of happens. That said, I think this year, I think he'd really like to make a big statement. Here, I think he's somewhat more motivated because he he's only played 44 matches this year, so he'd like you you usually by now he's played let's say 70, and so I think he'd like to really validate once and for all that he is the preeminent contender. I think this year is a year that he'd probably like to win it because he wasn't able to play so many tournaments this year, and I think that. Um, the, the, the event itself is a great event. And as much as I complain about the length of the calendar, I'm really looking forward to it next week because it really is the top players in the world at this sport, um, narrowed down. Of course we have the, the injury to the world number one, the current world number one, but still, even that doesn't take the bloom off of it because there's so much talent there and it's really narrowed down and refined and it's just the best of the best. Um, I do think there's motivation for Novak to try to push through and win this, even though it it won't mean that he could get the year in number one this year, not this year. Yeah, I'm in the same place. I think more and more as Novak's career has gone on, I think he's found it difficult to motivate himself outside of the majors, or at least to, you know, peak physically outside the majors. Uh, We've seen some of these Masters 1000s events are not at odds with that. Like if you look at a Rome where he's done very well, it's right before Roland Garros. He feels, you know, that kind of, he feels RG kind of as that um, straight ahead, like finish line. Um, And and he's played very well at a Masters 1000 like that. Uh, But yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. uh, 2016, 2017, both um, with some some injury issues. Um, But yeah, he's won it five times in total, none since 2015. But I agree, motivationally, this feels like it's going to be a little bit of a better spot for him to, to do well. Rafa, on the other hand, hasn't won it. Um, I think we covered this a lot a year ago. Uh, but I, I guess we, you know, we should kind of bring it up again. Um, Amy, why do you think this title has escaped Nadal throughout his career? I think it's just the conditions. This is not his best surface, a fast, hard court, and um, maybe the time of year, because as we know, 
his brand of tennis is extremely taxing on the body. And by the time November rolls around, um, whether his brain is ready for a break or not, his body is ready for a break. And, and there's really no fighting Mother Nature. That said, he has the opportunity potentially to grab the year in number one. And he's here. He's going to play it. So um, I definitely wouldn't count him out. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a little bit more opening opportunity incentive for Nadal, despite not having played much since the U.S. Open one match. But uh, I think that's appealing. And for all his statements about not wanting to that, if he was four or five in the rankings and OK, but it's it's close, it's possible. And that would be amazing. Think of Nadal year in number one in three different decades. That's pretty, mm. pretty darn good. The height of bounce has always been very low at uh, on these courts, and it's the same courts that that they played at the O2 transferred to Turin, as far as I can tell, which is generally how it goes when you have an event like this. They're not going to change the courts, um, and I, I think that's bigger than the than the speed. Um, I've always thought that. I think you know when the forehand just doesn't bounce off the court, uh, you're going to have, you know, Nadal's going to have a, a lot more issues, and um, the same. You know, same goes for some other aspects of his game. The backhand, too, I think, uh, benefits from a, a higher bounce. Um, and, you know, these players who play with, you know, more aggression and lower margins, they they are elevated, and Nadal is not. And I think, Joel, you've said this in the past. It, it might not be that Nadal plays worse indoors, uh, but his opponents are playing better. Well, they have a chance to do that. They hit on, you know, again, and it's so much different than playing at a major where you have to do it over the course of a three of five, three out of five set outdoors. Here, it's it's a controlled environment. They can almost, I mean, I've always thought that just about anyone at a around the same level can play 1.7 good sets against anyone and maybe kind of eke their way through to a win and be in that streaky mode. I mean, there's such an interesting event that you play three matches in a round robin. So there's kind of a, Two out of three indoors, scheduled times. You know, there's a lot of nice things that make it favorable, perhaps more for the underdog. All right, let's go through these head to heads. Um, and we'll start with Rafa, with everyone in his group. Amy, you got first dibs, and I'm kind of surprised <laughs> at who you chose. Uh, you wanted to talk about the Rafa Rude matchup, uh, which obviously we saw at the the Roland in the Roland Garros final. Why did this match pique your interest? <laughs> um, I'm going to be real honest with you. I first picked Djokovic, Tsitsipas, and I didn't want to like hog all the best matchups. So to be <laughs> nice to you guys, I took one of the most boring ones. <laughs> That's the reason I took Rafa Root. Um, I'll, I'll just go over it real quickly. Of course, they've only met once, which was at the final of Roland Garros this year. And for anyone who thought it might be a good match, it wasn't. Um, Rude was kind of shell-shocked or awed by the occasion. It's no secret that he loves Nadal. He's worked out at his academy in Mallorca and has patterned some aspects of his game after Nadal. And, um, you know, it was a straight set, very clear, straightforward victory for Rafa. Um that being said, Rafa may not be 100%. We know that. The The last match, though, with um, Tommy Paul that he lost, remember we brought it up on the last episode, or Gil, you did, and said, what happened to Rafa in those last few games? Well, it came out in a press conference this week that he actually vomited. He, he wasn't feeling well, and he left the court and vomited a short time later. So don't know if it was a stomach bug food poisoning, whatever, but it's true that he was not feeling good. So if he had been completely healthy for that match, who knows the outcome? Tommy Paul was playing a great match. But in terms of just this matchup, Rafa and Rude, um, Rude has a very top spinny backhand. And I, I just, on this surface, that's not going to do well. I, I think it's going to sit up right in Rafa's uh, strike zone. And Rafa just has uh, a few more all-court skills than Rude does at this particular point in his career. He's been around the hard courts. He's been around the fast courts. So I would give Rafa the edge here if he is um, feeling healthy. 
Rude might be the player with the lowest expectations coming into this event, even though he's the four seed. I mean, I don't know, Rude or Fritz, I think would be the center of that debate. Maybe some could argue Andre Rublev. I mean, one thing I do want to point out about Kaspar Rude, I mean, this event is all about beating top players. And in 2022 versus top 10 players, uh, Kasper's two and four. Um, in his career, he is six and 19. So uh, although he's kind of just risen, you know, to, to be a top player, there, there is not that much history of Casper being very, very dangerous um, against top players. Well, and I also agree about the backhand thing. Go ahead, Joel. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what the whole ebb and flow of this kind of event is like we're thinking about expectations and yeah fritz i guess is kind of like the the lucky loser because alcarez dropped out so fritz gets in as the as the, he was nine and now he moves to eight so that's right that's how taylor got in correct mm -hmm. oh yes yeah. so i think all these guys with their expectations i think this gets to sort of my thinking about this event as a little bit of an all-star game not that they're not going to try but it's kind of like i'm playing for 90 minutes to two hours indoors i know exactly what time i'm playing it's a controlled environment it's a nice check. So it's a different dynamic, plus or minus, than the tournament mode. I'm not talking, though, about Casper's expectations. Right, but I'm just talking about the whole way the player conducts business in this tournament. You know what I mean? It's kind of like Casper's so-so record against top players. I don't think it goes out the window in a tournament like this, but it kind of goes on the porch. You know, it's just kind of like, it's kind of a whole different kind of thing then. It, it's something different. There's something about this event you know, and maybe it's it's getting winning your first match in the round robin that puts you in a good place. Then you notice maybe sometimes a guy who's never played it before, it's miserable for him. It's almost like the cascade of it is all too much. So I, I don't know. I know I'm kind of talking in circles around this, but I just I think the expect even the expectations are different. It's it's kind of got a bonus quality to it. It's kind of got a that's why the all star game part. Yeah, nothing's. It's not gonna. It's not gonna hurt. It's not gonna hurt to go zero three in this. That Casp way. it's not gonna hurt. Like in terms of, in terms of it's like looking hurt back more on someone's I see what you mean. Versus like losing three, in the first losing, round of the U.S. Open. Yeah. No, or losing three straight first round matches, in in three tournaments. That's more painful than losing three in three days here. I agree. With that. Walking away with a nice check for a year spent in the top eight. Mm -hmm. By the way, Casper Rude, I mean, he he's really uh, struggled since the U.S. Open. I mean, I don't think I don't think indoor hardcourt suits him. I don't think anybody would argue that. But he's uh, two and two is his overall record. If you take out his wins at at Davis Cup and Laver Cup over Jack Sock, um, which and that which I, that Jack Sock thing, I believe, was a three set. It was pretty close. So, close. yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, he's got wins over Nicholas Yari and Richard Gazquet. Uh, he's lost to Jaume Munar. He's lost to Nishioka, Vavrinka, and Musetti. So so that's another thing of, about Rude coming into this event. I mean, he just hasn't shown us anything in the last two months, really, since the U.S. Open. So um, Nadal will, uh, I mean, of, of the two, that will probably be the matchup that's uh, most favorable to him. I'll go now. Uh, my player with Rafa is Felix. Uh, Felix has won 16 of his last 17 matches. Holger Runa broke the, the win streak, 16 straight wins, three straight titles in the semifinal of Paris-Bercy. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about, does the week off for Felix, is that much-needed rest, or is that momentum broken? Uh, how do we think about momentum in, in this kind of case? Does it exist? Does it not exist? So that's one thing to talk about. Uh, the good news for Rafa tactically is that Felix is a weak backhand. Uh, it's looked a lot better since the U.S. Open. But if you force Felix to hit a lot of backhands, generally you start to get some misses. You start to get some attackable balls. It's a good thing if you get him hitting backhands. Uh, the bad news for Rafa is that Felix does have the firepower on an indoor hard court to keep Nadal defending. And you could see something, you know, pretty similar to what Tommy Paul did with the, uh, you know, with the attacking style, keeping Nadal defending, uh, using the inside out forehand 
uh, for Felix into Nadal's forehand corner. You can see Felix just being the better server, and these things matter in these conditions. And uh, lastly, Felix played Rafa really well at Roland Garros. That was a five-setter. We were all very impressed with FAA's performance in that match. Yeah, a lot of people thought that should be the final. That They wish that had been the final. Um, I just think that Felix, to your point about how it, what momentum, how is that going to be? Remember, he did win that Swiss indoors. He beat Runa. And then he lost to Runa in Paris. Um, so uh, he's had a lot of indoor hardcore experience recently. Um, I think he'll be fine. I, I think he'll actually be. Oh, no, really he's the hottest player on. I mean, he won yeah. Rotterdam too. If you go back, I'm saying yeah. the week off, is it a good thing? That's my yes. question. Is it a yes. good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a great thing. And that be due to all the plethora of indoor hardcore that he's had, um, he'll be in good form it, it should be just about right i'm going much needed rest all day there's no question to me i mean that would be five straight weeks of tennis and and he'd be um i i think it's great that he if he had i think it's great there's no momentum i think is at a certain level particularly when he won three straight tournaments is a bit of an illusion it's like he took a quantum leap up with his tennis this fall we all know that in some ways he's more buoyed by having won three straight tournaments then extended Nadal to five sets six months ago on clay. So I think that's exciting. I think also maybe if he's, whether he's tired or fresh, I think he should feel they could swing away. He has less of a thing to prove. Not that that's so big. It's like he won three tournaments. That's a pretty darn good autumn. And now he should just feel good and, and let himself play. I was impressed by how much, uh, how much more depth he was getting on the ball throughout the fall. Before he struck me as sometimes hitting hard, but short. And now I think he's really understanding his game more. I mean, I was almost surprised the the Rune match was kind of surprising, but Rune kind of took it to him. And Felix definitely looked uh, looked weary in that match, the Paris indoor one. I mean, Gil, you said he was the hottest player on tour. Arguably, yes. But the other hottest player on tour who's not even here would be Runa. So, um you know, to go one and one against him in, in recent weeks is pretty doggone good. Yeah, it's it's absolutely between those two. Novak can make a pretty good case as well because he was on a an enormous winning streak until Runa beat him in the Paris final. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I think we can move on to, uh, to the next one. Uh, actually, one more thing on Felix that I think is just worth throwing out there. It is his first tour finals. And... I do think that there's often a bit of a learning curve at this event, uh, some sensory overload, maybe some big brother, little brother things going on. I think it's a lot to take in. So that's just something I, I think, you know, everything that Felix has shown on the court, you think he's going to have a great ATP finals. I do think that's a challenge to play it for the first time. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. That was the thing I was talking about earlier that the, the first time you see a lot of people, you look back at Novak, you look at a lot of players, not always, but it can, it can, it, it happens. It happens more for the ones who, who arrive slamless and, and then they've, they're in this thing, they've gotten in it, but they also know, Oh, wow. I'm playing a, I'm playing a top eight guy today and a top eight one tomorrow. And I'm not playing anyone ranked 72 tomorrow. So the, the weight of it all, I think, and I think it's always nice to see a newcomer. Let's say if they win their first match, you know, it's like it's like you guys have you ever play doubles where you rotate part where you play with three other people and everyone plays with one other partner? Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I always feel like I want to win that first one so I can be on the board. I don't want <laughs> if, I, if I don't win the first one, I worry about losing the second. And then by the time you see you see yeah. it's kind of that's the little the little mini momentum of the week. Of you the don't week. want to be that one person that lost all <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the I've commonality had, of the yeah, yes. Like I've had times where yeah, um one person's two and oh, and I'm all in two. And I said, I guess we're going to prove something now. Right? <laughs> I, I think I'm always big on the human factor, despite the fact that I love to look at stats and numbers and stuff like that. And it is a lot. There's press. Um, you're getting photographed. Everybody's in a suit or some sort of outfit. Um, 
you know, you look around and you see the greatness all around you and the money. I mean, millions of dollars up for grabs and, and who couldn't use more money? So uh, I, I do think that may may impact him in some way. All right, Joel, let's uh, let's do Rafa versus Fritz. Well, this is an interesting one. I think uh, at both sides, I mean, uh, Rafa's won two out of the three matches, the most recent, one of the best matches of the year, the fifth set tiebreaker that Nadal won at Wimbledon. Uh, tremendous, <clears throat> tremendous match. Um, uh, Fritz, in the wake of that, though, he admitted a few weeks later that he was still haunted by that loss and had a first round loss to Brandon Holt at the U.S. Open. That was an upset. And I think he's kind of a little little lost his way. I mean, a little not quite playing as well these last few weeks. And I think that lingered and it and affected him throughout the fall. So um, I, I think it's going to be, but it's a fun match. I mean, Fritz beat Rafa in the finals of Indian Wells, a career defining win for Fritz. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm Taylor Fritz. I'm looking forward to the years to come to see how well he improves his transition skills. If he does at all, I'm still staggered from where I come from that a guy that tall with a great serve from Southern California does not have an appetite for the net. That's such a mind blower that Rafael Nadal is better at the net than Fritz. And it speaks to some developmental things for all to consider someone who grew up on clay, but vision to envision his game to expand his skill set. And so now let's see if, if the hardcore guy can embrace his own kind of hardcore legacy. This match though, um, yeah, I think uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. I don't. I want, I'm not gonna not gonna predict someone, but I think it's gonna be. I think there'll be a lot of good rallies because their matches have had a lot of a lot of good all court tennis. Reminds me a little bit a different, a little different way of remember when Nadal would play Del Potro. Faint, great rallies. Yeah, yeah. lots of movement. So Fritz is another really strong backhand. Reminds me a little bit in that way of Nadal's last two losses, not to mention the fact that he's American, Francis Tiafo and Tommy Paul. So I'm still looking for Nadal just to start defending out of his forehand corner. Um, and then the interesting thing uh, will continue to be Nadal's surf. You know, how will it look? Amy, you mentioned in the interview that Rafa said he, uh, he was sick to his stomach in that third set against Paul. Um, did you see that he said that he hurt his ab again. He aggravated it, re-injured it right before the U.S. Open. He said that as well. Um, no, I guess that one got by me. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to keep track of all the injuries. And, you know, like in some ways, the the Djokovic fans will, will say, why are the excuses always being made about Nadal and his injuries? And in some ways, it's kind of like, yeah, there's a point there because Nadal's getting older. The injuries are not, and, and Djokovic is too, the injuries are not going to be less frequent. You know, they're going to be more frequent. So in some ways it's, it's like, okay, it's another Nadal injury, but he's going out there and he's well enough to play. So let's just, you know, kind of focus on that. Um, but on the Fritz thing, I, I wanted to add that, um, Taylor, he's just been unlucky, a little bit unlucky. He had to play Brandon Holt, who is like his childhood friend. And he admitted, this was hard for me to play. And and I get that because you, it's you super... can't you can't lose that match, though. No, but but it, it, it kind of opened up a window into his soul. It's like, oh, Taylor Fritz has like a sensitive chip in his body because I understand that I hate playing friends, especially good friends. Um, but he, you know, it, give Brandon Holt a lot, a ton of credit. Um, and then Fritz gets involved in a match in Paris in Gilles Simone's last hurrah, his last run in France. And, and he loses that one. I mean, um, so I think that probably to your point, Joel, he probably still is suffering some of the effects of that loss at Wimbledon. You know, it's funny though. I actually, I, I like playing my friends. I know they're my friends. So we can just do tennis business. It's kind of funny about that. I actually, I have to find it sometimes harder to play people I don't know as well because I don't know. It's almost like it's funny. It has to do with this thing with affinity and connection. And yeah, I covered, I, I covered that 
Fritz Holt match. And Brandon saw it as opportunity because he knew him, but maybe it was opportunity because he was the underdog. So maybe that's part of it too. Whatever that means. I mean, Taylor Fritz was a seed and here's Brandon uh, had qualified. So it's a different, a different uh, dynamic. And then, yeah, then you got Simone, but uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's interesting, interesting ebb and flow of, of these matches. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of power in Nadal's section. Lots of good serve plus one in in Fritz, um, Felix, and uh, why am I forgetting? Oh, and Kasparud. Um, they all have excellent serve plus one games that uh, Rafa will need to contend with. Let's see how he looks. Uh, hasn't really played well since Wimbledon. If we're gonna, you know, be honest, hasn't played well. well. And also the thing we talk about injuries. I meant, to, I meant to add this: the injuries. Like, like, imagine, imagine you're an artist and took each of these eight players and drew them as an automobile, and drew what they were like in the automobile. And Adele, a lot of his career has been he's hasn't often been what I call you know right out of the showroom fresh. There's often stuff that's a little bit of the Nadal storyline, is the resilience and coming back from these from various injuries. He's the old um, Porsche Roadster in that creamy white that has this beautiful patina to it. But, you know, it's going to need a new carburetor soon. <laughs> All right. Okay, good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. okay. We may have to have to see what you, what we see Novak is. Yeah. What, and I, Roger took his Mercedes. Roger took his Mercedes, vintage Mercedes and just put it in the garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So sedan or a sports car, Roger? Um. He's a sports car. Yeah, he's a sports car. He's not a sedan. He's, he's like a, I, but no, but he's not a race car either. He's like a Bentley. In my in my view, yeah, right? Well, it's it's yeah, luxury. Think... It's luxury. It's quiet. It's smooth. It goes fast, but it doesn't go fast like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. It doesn't sound like it's going fast. It just goes fast. I just couldn't get the SUV out of my head because that's what he did the commercial with the all the kids in the back in the Mercedes SUV. <laughs> the commercial is not the personification of the tennis game. So we'll we'll take this up around the Indianapolis 500 next year. That's an American expense. <laughs> S- sounds good. Uh, let's go on to Djokovic. But before that, I, I know, Amy, you mentioned like the idea of uh, Nadal being always injured and sometimes mm-hmm. other fan bases not appreciating that that is so much dominating the discussion. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'll say, you know, people can agree or disagree when when we make assessments of what happened in a match. The one thing we're never, ever doing, I'll speak for myself, the one thing I'm never, ever doing is making excuses. I am not Nadal's defense attorney. I do not need to defend him. If I If I make an assessment that something happened in a match because he was not 100% and his serve looked bad, and I think it's because of the abs. I'm not making an excuse. I am making an analytical assessment. So it's just one of my one of my least favorite responses sometimes that I see when I when I have an opinion is that I made an excuse. Um, I am not Nadal's agent. I am <laughs> not his defense attorney. I have never made an excuse in my life for any player. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, it, we're we're just speaking the facts. I mean, if these injuries were addressed in, in post-match press conference, we're going to talk about them as a fact. This injury may prevent this player from playing in the future, in the short term or whatever. Um, that's simply what we're talking about. We're not making really a, a judgment related to the tennis one way or the other. All right. Um, I will start with Djokovic in the red group. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash special offer. And uh, my matchup is Djokovic Medvedev, which we've seen many, many times. Uh, we last saw it in Astana. And uh, I actually believe both players, knowing the psyche of tennis players, will probably feel like they won that match. I think Medvedev <laughs> in his head thinks, I had him and I got injured. Totally had him, would have won. And I think Djokovic is thinking, I was going to come back. I had it. So I bet both players feel like they won that match in Astana. Obviously, only Djokovic moved on as Medvedev uh, hurt his abductor. Luckily, it wasn't long-term, and, and uh, we'll get to see it again, uh, which is fantastic because it's been such, a fan, it's been such a, an interesting rivalry, which started as tactically very, very physical wars. And it was kind of 50-50. Medvedev won sometimes, Djokovic won sometimes, but it was always gripping, physical, long, uh, really, um, really, really kind of like prime Djokovic grinding, grind fests, I'll say, uh, because of how both of them played. Novak, at a certain point, I think it was Australian Open 2021, was like, look, this is not how I should be playing Daniil Medvedev. I have better weapons than him. I have more uh, finishing skills, and I am going to take it to Daniil offensively because if we are grinding, this becomes a 50-50, and I think I can tilt this more towards me. I'm going to drop shot. I'm going to serve in volley. I'm going to be aggressive with my forehand. Enough of this grinding. And that's how I think he's played recently. The thing is, sometimes that leads to errors. So Novak can sometimes um, make more mistakes. Uh, what I saw in Astana was Medvedev really trying to keep the ball on Djokovic's backhand uh, to try to get back to that that physicality and those long rallies because Daniil felt, if I just keep it on your backhand, you can't really hurt me in rally. So I think there's a lot of fascinating dynamics. Djokovic has looked great. I thought he, you know, he played a bad match against Runa. It happens. Um, not to take anything away from Holger. I just think Novak missed a ton of opportunities. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think Medvedev in general, has been very difficult to predict. I was very surprised by his loss to Alex Dimonor in, in Paris-Bercy because uh, he had looked so good, and it, it seemed like he was picking up momentum. Um, it, he, he had won a title the week before in uh, Sofia, I want to say. Am I getting that wrong? Let me check real quick. Um, his title was in Vienna, sorry, Vienna, Austria. Uh, he looked great. And I thought it was going to be a big Paris Masters, and it wasn't. So the up-and-down season continues in 2022 for Daniil Medvedev. I think Medvedev is, uh, in, a, in a bigger way than I talked about Taylor Fritz feeling the, the aftermath of the tight loss to Nadal. I think Medvedev, well, the tight loss to Nadal in Australia, but I think a kind of haunted haze over him all year both from that loss in Australia to Nadal, but also by seeing these other styles and things emerge. He's not quite, it's like there are ways Alcarez and even Runa re revealed sort of the, some of the tactical and technical limitations Medvedev has, not by beating him, but by showing others what they can do. And so I think Medvedev, because I we talked about this a while ago, I thought Medvedev was looking a little bit like yesterday's news as Alcarez bloomed. I mean, Medvedev, like for example, even in the recent match with uh with Novak, big point, five on that second set tiebreak, misses a very makeable forehand volley. I mean, and it's and it is technically a, a bad kind of miss. And you know, I'm just curious to see how Medvedev continues to up his skill set. What I so like about Novak is that he's always looking to add that 7%. And there are things he does. The base is so strong, and he looks to do things. I mean, that, it was over a year ago, that serve and volley effort in the Paris Masters versus Medvedev showed a lot about Novak and his his openness to innovation, to expansion of his of his weaponry and his arsenal, and what that can mean for future tournaments too, both this one and also for majors. I kind of there's there's something there's a little bit of a shadow over Medvedev this year. And you add to that, of course, what he's been going through with the tensions and the war between his home country and, and Ukraine. Haunted Hayes is kind of a good, and he didn't even get to play Wimbledon this year. Um, I, that's just brilliant analysis, Joel. I really like that. Um, Novak is, like, if, if 
Novak didn't know how to really hit a technically sound, I don't know, backhand volley right now. Let's say he was struggling with that, although he, he is very technically sound on that shot. Um, he would go to work. I mean, he would say, I got to have this in my tool bag. And he would change what he was doing. Um, is Medvedev of a mind to do that kind of thing? Um, and and talk about a tall guy, Joel, who who doesn't like the net. When you mention Fritz, Medvedev's even taller. And so, he makes Fritz. He makes Fritz look like the second coming of Patrick Rafter up there. I mean, yeah. I think uh, I think Medvedev does he have the willingness and does he also have the base from which to do that? That's one of the things that's yeah. so great. Novak. He has this technical base that allows him to say yes, add volley, and so it's a little bit like a company with a great product and Novak is going to say, we're going to take this percentage of our earnings and put it back into R&D each year. I mean, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I, guys, I think it's a lost cause. I mean, we can talk no. about Medvedev's fault. I do. I, I really do. I really do believe that. Um, here's the thing. So I'd love Novak to ask him that in a press conference. Oh. Like Medvedev, Medvedev, Gil says your volleys <laughs> are a lost cause. What do you say? <laughs> Look, Look, not no, everyone's going to, not everyone on tour is going to become a good volleyer. Why well, not? They should. They should. Yeah. Again, you, you talked about the base, Joel. And Medvedev and, and Novak are compared to each other often. They are polar opposites in technique. Djokovic yep. is literally, this is a cliche, but literally what you put in the textbook. Uh, if if you're trying to hit a two-hander, look at Novak. Yes. And and that is true about almost every shot he hits. Yes. Uh, even the serve, which like has never been what he's known for, is a is a fantastic, simple and sound motion. Everything. Medvedev, even the shots that are good are not normal looking. No, Before, I mean, like, I mean, you notice how when he's also you notice even with some when he's losing, he's like rushing the service motion. It's like what are you, me at the park? You know what I mean? That's like, <laughs> I know there's, there, there's a definitely a, a self-learned taught aspect to no, to Medvedev that's so different than Novak with his discipline and his practice routine. You're right. Medvedev is kind of like the triumph of the, of the self-taught thing. So you're, you're, so I don't know. We'll have to see. Maybe he'll learn a great swing valley. Maybe. It, only sometimes is applicable. That's kind of going out of vogue, especially in the men's game. Just, you know, focus on this. Well, I mean, who am I to say? But just he's got so much height and range and wingspan. Um, you would think that he would have a strong desire to. But, you know, some people are a little bit more stubborn. Not that not that he is. We don't know. But, you know, they, they're set in their ways. And um, this wasn't something that a stroke that they felt passionate about. So. Maybe not. Yeah, I just think it's it's too far gone. You look at that technique, and that's someone who's never going to volley great to me. And I, if he proves me wrong, that's awesome. Also, let's remember he's not young anymore, and I know he's kind of lumped into the the young guys, but he's he's not. He's twenty six. He's going to be twenty seven very soon. Uh, it's Daniil Medvedev's in his prime right now. This is not really a young developing player. Um, let's go to the next Novak head to head. Djokovic Medvedev is going to be fascinating. Can't wait to see it again. Uh, let's go with Djokovic Rublev, which Joel, you have. It's funny. I look, I did some research on this, and for some reason in my head, I thought I would have thought they played each other more. They've only played each other twice. It's one to one. Uh, the most recent, Rublev won. He beat him in, in Belgrade in the finals. Matt, I think we 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 did a show right after that match, a, a three-set final that uh that Rublev won 6-0 in the third. This is kind of like Novak shaking off some cobwebs in the in the spring. And uh, uh, I think I'm less engaged by the tennis in this match than I am in some of the other ones. This match, there's something about prosaic, cross-court, cross-court, lots of cross-court. Okay, Novak a little bit more margin indoors. I mean, it's just, I like, you know, I really, Rublev's a player, I really like him. I like his attitude. I like his... I like his humanness. I like there's a lot I like about him and how he 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 tries to he conducts himself and you see he's he's raw. I wrote a story about him last week. He's raw. He's human. He's emotional, but he he knows that. And and yet I'm not sure his arc 
if he's going to be a, a six through 15 guy for his career, if he has that extra dose of unpredictability or, or weaponry to, to vault further. I mean, I look at them each, each of these guys has won four titles this year. Uh, Rublev and Novak, except Novak won that one in London. The one that Rublev couldn't play. The one that Rublev wasn't allowed to play. And, and Rublev, he's never gone past the quarters of the major. I don't know. I just, uh, I see this match being kind of uh, straightforward. That doesn't mean it won't be dramatic at times, but there'll be a lot of this. We'll see a lot of the same rallies. So I think, I mean, I, I just think that a lot of will depend on whether or not it's a good match will depend on uh, Rublev's first serve because Djokovic is such a great returner and Rublev, there's a large disparity between his first and second serve. So if Novak can start getting into some of those second serve points, um, it's probably going to be a straight set win for Novak. But, you know, if, if, if Novak doesn't get to see a lot of second serves, then it may be a closer match. I, I, I agree. And I just, I just see that this matchup Rublev like Medvedev has a, a, a line broadening challenge. Medvedev actually has some broader skills and things he does because of his self-taught strokes. Rublev is much more technically disciplined, closer to what you would show. And yet he doesn't, his, his innovation index is pretty low for me. So that's why I wonder if he's going to have a, if he's kind of maxed out what he's going to be and he's going to win plenty of titles and plenty of late stages of other tournaments. But again, the fact that he's owing six and slam quarters is to me a little bit of a, of a yellow flag that he hasn't been able to find that extra gear. Yeah. He's absolutely unequivocally for the last three years, been a five through Joel, you, you did a bigger range. I think we can narrow it a little bit. He's been like a five through nine player for, for three years now, ever since 2020. And there's been a line of demarcation hasn't really beaten top players. Um, but you know, he's, you know, a, a top eight player the last three years um I, I think it's pretty easy to simplify his game he hits very hard he takes the ball very early and he doesn't miss very much there's not a lot of unforced errors either uh which is a, an awesome combination but to me the way he he has success is he rushes the player on the other side of the court like he's he's taking the ball early he's hitting it really hard and you know it's linear power and i just think he he faces some of these opponents like Djokovic and Medvedev who are pace absorbers. And it's just like, look what Andre does. It doesn't bother us. So it, it, it does. It feels sometimes like there's a lot of matchup nightmares with Rublev and it feels like he has a much better chance of getting into um, uh, playing someone like Tsitsipas or Dominic team, like a one-handed backhand who can sometimes get rushed on that side. That's the kind of player he can have a six, have success against much more so than a, a pace absorbing two-hander like Djokovic or Medvedev. Well, and the human aspect, I mean, someone's going to be on against Rublev. I think if you people who play him, they're well aware of that, but that's it. His, I think sometimes it's his imagination. And that's what I'm kind of intrigued to see how he embraces other parts of the game. If he does, if he wants to do that in the years to come. I mean, this game is pretty, is pretty clear. It's pretty vivid. And if you watch Rublev play tennis, oh, so this is tennis. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like, he's great. Wow, he's fit. Wow, he strikes the ball well. But it's pretty, and I, th I, I see opponents, they get, in that, they get in a groove against him. He helps them feel tuned up. And if he's hitting a little bigger than you and you're not, then you're kind of, you know, on the trolley, as they say. But if you're, but if you're in there with him, that's why I think, okay, he might be the one who's going to be the, he's the, he's the least able, I think, to streak his way to reaching the semis out of the round robin. See, I think you see some of these other players, Fritz or Felix, they slash a few balls, crack a few, hit a few big winners. Rulov, he's he's rational and, and thoughtful. He doesn't make a lot of bad decisions. He just, because he, he pretty, talk about lane knowledgement. <laughs> you know, lane recognition. He knows his lane. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's kind of a common misconception about Rublev because people see him as this ultra-aggressive uh, player, which, yes, he is in terms of the pace, but he actually doesn't make a lot of errors. Um, and you're right, Joel, he's very disciplined in his decisions. Not going for it when you, it's not going for it when you own it. Yeah, yeah, good point. All right, last matchup um, of our breakdown. 
is Djokovic Tsitsipas. And uh, here's Amy. Yeah, it's a large body of work, right? Um, I, isn't it interesting how of these eight players, some of them have just met so infrequently, and yet these guys, uh, Djokovic and Tsitsipas, have met 11 times. Djokovic owns the rivalry nine and two. And the Tsitsipas couple of wins that he had were years ago, like 2018, around that time, um, when when Novak may have been going through a dip at that time. So, um, you know, some of their best matches, some of their closest matches have been on clay until Paris, uh, which many said uh, was... Stefanos's best effort against Novak, his closest effort, and yet Novak still got the win in three sets. So um, I love this rivalry because I see this young player not giving up and trying to figure out the greatest player, one of the greatest players of all time. And um, he has had to adapt and he is using slice more which I noticed in the last match, he, he used to never have a slice. It's coming along. It's, it's on a good trajectory. He'll have to use that on this fast, hard court. And um, I think he's starting to pick up on some of Novak's patterns. So it'll be on Novak to then change his patterns again. And, and I wrote an article, an entire article, about how Novak has done a masterful job when he plays Stefanos of getting him to cough up errors, not on his backhand, but on his forehand side. Well, that began to shore up the last time they played. He didn't make as many errors on that side. So I anticipate another great match um and and maybe this will be the one that uh stefanos is finally able to turn the tide do we believe that uh the ship see I, i've looked at it in terms of Djokovic's success that a ship is only as strong no no a chain is only as strong as its weakest link do you, is can that be true in tennis because to me the Pass and, and Amy, I know that Novak goes to the forehand. He does that, and, and we've discussed this. You, you have to do it if you just go to the backhand over and over again. You make the backhand better because it's not under pressure, and he runs around and hits forehand. So with that said, I still think the backhand is the problem in this head-to-head. -head. It's the weak link on the court, and I think Novak finds ways to get to it and maybe the backhand doesn't miss, but even if it doesn't miss, it's where the short ball comes from. It's where the attackable ball comes from. And uh, like you could see it in that Paris tiebreak if you watch the points. Djokovic missed. He made two errors trying to change direction on his forehand, trying to squeeze it into that backhand side. Two errors with changes of direction down the line. Everything else to the backhand, Tsitsipas missed one. He hit two bad trades that led to, you know, short balls that Djokovic punished and finished with with his forehand. So I just I just think, you know, as as much as these two have played a lot of really good matches, one shot, one ground stroke can't hang. And it's been the Tsitsipas backhand. I would agree with that. And I would say like there's a course to be taught on Novak's tiebreak management. It's not the course. It's not the way everyone should always play every tiebreak, but just as a, as a method of study of his of his lockdown, of his awareness, of his targets. And I think that Tsitsipas backhand, yeah, but the chain, the, the thing in tennis, though, that's the weak link, but that doesn't mean you just try to break that part of the link. You got to go to the other links to get, you know, the whole way you build points and you realize that the, the backhand isn't attaining the purchase that Stefanos would want. I, I see the slice coming along. I still think the technique is beguiling. It's strange to me. I don't quite get the whole technique. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me as someone of, again, I've said this before, of when I learned to play that big time players are trying to gain technique on a shot that I think is like breathing. I mean, I think <laughs> that is just, that it's like, but they're trying to get it and the grip and the racket and maneuver it. And in Novak, you know, Novak has gone through his period with a slice where his slice has become reasonably fine, but it still looks, they all, they all look for these guys, Novak, Rafa too with his, Stefanos, they're all learned. It's like learning a third language. 
You know what I mean? It's like, yes, slice backhand, get racket through ball and underspin, and then understanding how it fits into the game. So I think, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Tsitsipas seeks to continue to evolve that stroke. But Novak, hey, Novak knows quite what to do and to, to weather the storm because there's a lot to weather when Tsitsipas is playing well. I, I would say, Gil, that on the on his backhand, it breaks down as as a so-called weak link. It breaks down less frequently than you would think because everybody tries to attack it. And as everybody tries to attack it, he hits it more and more and more. And like Roy Emerson said, the more you hit a stroke, the better you get at it. So it, it's kind of a push-pull. But I will give you this. On this surface, where we talked about low bounces and we talked about surface speed, however you want to put that mishmash, um, for for his take back, the way that his technique is, it does become more of a liability. Well, and to me, the liability is not just the missing, it's what it accomplishes for him. You know, it's kind of, it's just like, is it doing the things that he wants it to do so we can get, so we can have Novak do something that's more advantageous. So it's, it's not so much, not just missing. It's not that it's missing as much as is it, is it really, you know, moving through the court or staying low or going deep or angled. So many times his backhand, you know, it has so, it's not making any kind of statement. And that's therefore an anti-statement that's going to hurt him and get him running more. All right. It's going to be Really, really fun to watch these matchups play out. This was super fun going through them with all of you. Amy is frozen on my screen. Um, oh. oh, there you are. You're back. Now now <laughs> I feel I like I'm ready. Maybe I was just sitting still. Maybe I was just sitting really still. Yeah, now I feel like I'm ready to end the episode. It just didn't feel right on like a frozen Amy. Uh, so, so now we're all good. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube as well, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.